Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Marcus Samuelson about his new book, The Rise. He describes his early years in Ethiopia and Sweden, the influence of African food in America, as well as the rich diaspora of black dishes from Dorawat to grits. So much of the food that we really 
think through as American food today. You think about grits, you think about the techniques of barbecues, for example, come from West Africa. But then also there's been this incredible layering, like a cuisine, like Creole for me, that is a complete link between France, Haiti, Africa, the Spanish, and America. Only that cuisine can really take place in America. Also coming up, we make bold soupo piece two, and Bianca Bosker discusses the introduction of the fork to the American table. But first is my interview with author Joe Berkowitz. He spent a year exploring the subculture around cheese for his book, American Cheese. Joe, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. Uh, very few people have that eureka moment, but you did as you write in your book. Uh, you said the world of Pepper Jack was dead. <laughs> and you tasted something called Rogue River Cheese, uh, and you write, I, I love the writing. The first word that comes to mind was dank, a guttural current of wishing weed buzz. It packs a visceral drug punch that reverberates throughout my body. It was the dawning realization that cheese was a miracle food, an edible unicorn. Um, was it really that good? It was just so far away from the kinds of cheese I'd had to eat before. And that was the big story of uh, researching and living this book for me was realizing just how incredible some cheeses could taste. There are just mountains beyond mountains. Now, you said in your book that you were did a tasting of some cheese that was in the process of being aged. And then uh, the cheesemaker took a sample from the next day's cheese. And you said it actually tasted different. You could taste the difference. And I thought that was really like like a Monday's cheese a year ago tastes one way and Tuesday's cheese a year ago tastes differently? Yeah, that was a dairy called Uplands in Wisconsin. And when I went in the, the cave with the main cheesemaker, I asked him, you know, if he had any like kind of a secret stash, like a, a, a wheel that was particularly good that he returned to. And he took me there and we had a sample of that. And then, yeah, we tried the next day's cheese. And in a hard to articulate way, there was a distinct difference between, you know, his mm. uh, most primo batch and uh, the next day's. And if I hadn't been eating cheese every day for a year with intent focus, I don't know if I would have been able to make the distinction. But in that moment, I definitely did. Okay, so tasting cheese like tasting wine, there are all these terms. And in the book, you and your wife are to tasting, and someone says, quote, it's meaty on the nose of the piney note and roasted shiitake mushrooms at the finish. Is this just like the wine world where half of this is complete, utter nonsense? I think some people have a more acute palate, and they can detect things that not everybody can. But I think similar to how wine works, People can incept an idea of how it tastes in your head, and uh, most of the time, it's it can be really hard to argue with them if they're good at their job. Well, you do say that sharpness is not really a term, and you write in your book, it's a shared hallucination that means whatever anyone needs it to mean, mm -hmm. and then you're even harsher about the term assertive. Yeah, you know, like if you were to say, oh, this cheese has high acidity, that's not really going to make anyone excited about it, but you say that this is a real sharp cheese, it definitely, you know, tickles your brain in a different way. Uh, and yeah, assertive, I just think that's a funny way to say that uh, a cheese stinks. Another one is <laughs> barnyardy. Oh, yeah. Every time I've heard someone say that, it means it tastes at least a little bit like poop. Yeah. 
Um, now, let's talk about the world of cheese. You, you went to lots of events. You ran into lots of people. You write, the cheese world is made up of misfits, rebels, rogues, and romantics. So are there one or two people you met during this journey that are really unusual, different, have great stories? Well, there's a, a cheese influencer named uh, Tanaya Darlington. She goes by Madame Fromage, <laughs> and she holds Philadelphia's cheese ball. And it's just this huge party where there'll be like this big Last Supper tableau of all kinds of cheese on this table. And another blogger, Erica Kubik, goes by Cheese Sex Death. Uh, one of the more interesting events I went to, perhaps the most interesting, <laughs> was this event she threw called Strip Cheese, where it was a cheese-themed burlesque show. <laughs> and what, what exactly does that mean, do I dare ask? <laughs> well, so her, her brand is kind of like a sexy goth approach to cheese, and her event was held in a former funeral parlor in Chicago, and there was a coffin full of cheese. So everyone came in and feasted for a while. And then it's a burlesque show, but everyone had some way to tie cheese into it. One was a tribute to Chester Cheetah that was sort of unexpected, where a guy stripped down to his skivvies and was just belly flopping all over a bowl full of Cheetos on the ground after <laughs> starting off in like a crisp, pristine white suit. Uh, yeah, so it just goes to show that there is a weird but fascinating fandom around cheese. It's, all, it's an entire subculture that I had no idea existed. Thank you so much. I will never get that image out of my mind, <laughs> uh, belly flopping on Cheetos. Um, so if you're into cheese professionally, there are professional conventions every year. So what about tastings? Are there places where you go when you have to identify cheese? There are these certifications you can get, like a sommelier, and uh, one of them is the taste test. That is just, can you identify when cheese is defective? So the best you could hope for was it would just not taste as nutty as normal. It would taste a little bit plain, but then there would also be some cheeses I tasted, and it just tasted just rotten. <laughs> so give me a few cheeses that I may not know about, but you really think are exceptional. Well, Rogue River Blue is incredible. It's from Rogue River Creamery in Oregon, and uh, it tastes, the way I describe it in the book, is it tastes like Fruity Pebbles cereal milk, but fermented into fudge. <laughs> and it just doesn't have a taste like what I associate with cheese. Uh, it, yeah, it's really incredible. I think my favorite are Alpine-style cheeses, like Gruyere and Emmentaler, which is what we call Swiss cheese. And I had always hated or been indifferent to Swiss cheese, you know, just the kind that are sliced and have holes in them. But actual Emmentaler cheese from Switzerland is delicious. So for Christmas, I shouldn't send you a box of Pepper Jack, right? Uh, yeah, I would ship it right back <laughs> to you. No, I'm kidding. I would, I'd eat the whole thing. <laughs> that's, that's something is that I think you can become a cheese snob in the way that I sort of have. And it doesn't automatically mean that you turn up your nose at Pepper Jack. I will still eat Pepper Jack any day of the week. I like it a lot. 
Joe, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for this uh, walk down cheese lane. Thanks. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me on. That was Joe Berkowitz. His book is American Cheese, an indulgent odyssey through the artisan cheese world. It's time to take your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Okay, Sarah, so I have a question before we take calls. Everyone has a jar, half-filled jar of capers, right, in their refrigerator, or I have two or three at all times for some reason. So what do you do with all those capers sitting around? Now, it's so funny you should bring up capers because my dad, who passed away last year, his all-time favorite thing was sole, you know, in brown butter with capers. Mm. So I was just at our old farmhouse, and there were six jars in there. So I have started actually uh, doing pork with brown butter and caper sauce, chicken cutlets with brown butter and caper sauce, Yeah, so lots of brown butter and caper sauce is what I do with capers. But I also throw it into tuna fish, you know, tuna salad. Anytime I want to pickle something salty, I'll throw it into something like that or into a tomato sauce to get a little je ne sais quoi. I love putting it in ratatouille, you know, that vegetable, Provencal vegetable stew. It's a nice little salty, crunchy thing in there. I love it in tuna fish. I agree. It's great in a sauce, a little white wine and butter and a little quick two-minute pan sauce. Absolutely. But the thing is, they keep staring at me. Yeah. (laughs) Well, go back to the old soul with brown butter sauce and capers. There you go. And think of my sweet dad. Okay. Time to uh, take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Ginny from London. From London? How is London today? It's just marvelous. I really enjoy it a lot. So how can we help you? I've had this dilemma for a while. How do you make blueberry pancakes without making the pancakes blue? A deep question. Because if you mix them in the batter, the batter becomes purple or blue. So I'm trying to figure out a way to prevent that from happening. Well, I assume you've tried pouring the batter on the griddle or pan and then plopping blueberries on top, right? Yeah, I've done that. I mean, then you have to cover them with more batter because the blueberries will stick, you know, to the skillet. I have a griddle, electric griddle. I make them a lot. You know, I pour the batter out, then I very quickly add the blueberries. As the pancakes cook, as you know, they won't totally cover the blueberries, but they'll start to. And then if you have a well-greased or seasoned griddle, you won't stick, really. Flip it over and... It won't be perfect. You'll get some bleeding on that one side. <laughs> My flip answer is eat them in the dark. But if you want to eat them <laughs> in the light of morning, you could try a pour. Well, I'm sorry. I just love to eat them. They don't last long. I would put a little flour on the blueberries uh, before you add them to the pancakes. That will help a little bit. The other thing I never tried but I always wondered about was could you use frozen berries? And in the time it takes to cook a pancake, would they get to the point that they're unfrozen, that might be worth the test. Yeah, yeah. Those are two great ideas. I'll have to give those a try. I agree with all of that, and I do believe that the frozen would work. I think that would be perfectly fine. Okay. Ginny, why don't you try this and then let us know how it goes? I will, yes. I'll try that this weekend. Okay. Take care. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime with your kitchen questions. The number is 855-426-9843. 
One more time, that's 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Leah from Annapolis, Maryland. How can we help you? So I am uh, recently engaged. Congrats. Thank you so much. My fiancé nearly subsisted on sardines before he met me. I cook quite a bit, but I don't cook sardines. And so he, you know, mentioned sometimes how Mrs. is eating his sardines. And so I thought, well, maybe Chris and Sarah know what to do with sardines. My first question is, did he tell you this before you got engaged? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a short answer. I would use sardines the way I use fish sauce. It's a base flavor. So I would pick out a couple of sardines when you're heating up oil to saute onions or whatever you're doing to start a recipe. They dissolve into Mm -hmm. the oil. You don't taste anything fishy. You just get that umami flavor, right? The deep, rich background note. So if Mm -hmm. you're making a soup or a stew or anything else, it's just a way of adding complexity. That's how I use sardines. And now Sarah's going to tell you she eats them right out of the can. No, no. I was going to say another way to think of sardines is like tuna fish, but more moist. So you could make like a sardine salad, you know, like you would with tuna. But uh, there's a classic Italian dish, which is pasta con sarde, which is sardines tossed with spaghetti that uh, combined with garlic and crumbs and parmesan and parsley. So it makes a nice pasta sauce. I wouldn't like it with tomatoes, but that's a place you could put it into a tomato sauce. You could put it on a pizza. I feel like I'm doing a a Dr. Zeus rhyme here. Dr. Zeus. In a house with a mouth. You could put it in fish tacos. On a boat with a goat. You you could add it to, I don't know, braised greens. (laughs) A great way to do it would be to grill up some baguette, cross-cut slice, brush with olive oil, grill it up, and Mm -hmm. then crumble up the sardine with some white beans and some really good olive oil and lemon and some fresh herbs and put that on top as an hors d'oeuvre. I want to get back to the boyfriend thing here for a second. So, first of all, do you like sardines? Let's just find out what's yeah, going on. Do you really like sardines? Yeah, that's basic here. I'm not opposed to them. I feel like I'm just ignorant. I just don't know what to do with them. And they are pretty fishy. Just keep in mind when anything is fishy, a good way to counterbalance that is with fresh lemon juice. So if you have to make it once okay. a week and you're still not sure you like it, I would make sure there's a lot of lemon in there because that right. will really cut the fishiness. But, you know, that fishiness could grow on you too. So It could. I have a really devilish notion here. Okay. In Vermont, if you have a rabbit dog that chases deer, you get the dog in close contact with some really rotten deer meat so they have a bad experience. So you could make the uh-huh. worst possible sardine dish ever that he just never wants to eat it again. Now, that that is warfare. really insidious of me to suggest that, but you might just, like, overdo it, right? Right. Or serve him sardines every day for two months, and then oh, you're done. Oh, yeah, so he's just sick of them. I didn't know you had this hmm. evil side. <laughs> yeah, you could have a little fun with this, you know? I mean, come on. Golly, the things you learn when you call in. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Anyway, good luck with this. <laughs> Thanks, Take care. guys. I appreciate right. it. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I'm talking to Chef Marcus Samuelson. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson. His new book, The Rise, explores contemporary black cooking through chef profiles and recipes. Marcus, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's, it's been a long time since we chatted. Um, your new book, The Rise, is dedicated to your mother. Uh, and you once wrote, when I go back to Africa... When I see a young woman carrying a couple of kids, two kids, I wonder if that's what my mother looked like. Could you just explain why you why you said that? Yeah, I mean, I think that adoption, and in in my case, I'm obviously extremely grateful to my Swedish parents that I got adopted. But uh, when you're adopted, you as a child and as an adult, also you you always wonder what if. And uh, when me and my sister got adopted um, my mom my sister and I we had tuberculosis and what we do know about our mother Anna is that she she died in her mid-20s um, walking my sister and I from the village with tuberculosis into Swedish hospital and then she passed away so I don't have any memories I don't have a picture of her I don't remember what her eyes looks like. Just very basic, fundamental things that most people have clear memories of their mother. And uh, so so reimagining my mother is something that I do. And my sister also, we talked about this. We do that. But we don't do it when we see a black young woman here in America. We do do it only when we come to Africa because mm. I think it's the nature and the surroundings and everything, and specifically Ethiopia. You obviously don't remember the village when you were that young, but you've gone back. Um, could you just tell us about the village you were born in? Uh, has it changed a lot from people you've spoken to uh, since you were young? Uh, is it still pretty much the same? Yeah, so I would say the biggest change came about six or seven years ago. So I was born in a, a tiny village. It's called Abragodena, which is about now a used to be about a three-hour drive from Addis, from the capital, and now it's about, you can do it in an hour and a half because they actually built a highway, right? That's a massive change, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And Abu is this, you know, it's basically imagine the savannah, an African savannah where you drive and drive and drive. You know, it's dry, the sand is red, and it's dusty, and then you just take off this tiny little bumpy road to the right, and there it is, about 15 huts or so, and that's our Gradena. But about six years ago, they built a road through this village. Hmm. And I was actually there with Anthony Bourdain, and for me, it was just one of these things that I guess even our Gradena it's not safe from gentrification because right. happened to be that they found salt and minerals about a couple of miles away. So um, for about 30 years or so, it was very similar. And then about six years ago, it changed. You, you talk about your son, Zion. Mm-hmm. Um, you say he's going to grow up to be a herring and mackerel boy mm-hmm. in Swedish, but he'll also be a Dora Watt kid, uh, the famous Ethiopians too. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, one of the many reasons of writing The Rise was to really talk about 
the complexity and the layers of blackness. It's not one linear path. You can actually be Swedish like Zion, being a black, brown-skinned kid with super curly hair, live in Harlem, and feel connected to this triology between America, of course, Sweden as a place where we go in the summertime, and Ethiopia as a place of originality where I would say culturally his mom and I are raising him very much like an Ethiopian kid in Harlem. So I do think it's important that he is connected to all these three, and that's the blessings of being in America, is that you can clearly identify with all three. You know, the rise talks about the complexity and the many different ways we are in America through our food, but also through our identity. And once you start to understand the food on it, you start to understand, see the possibility of blackness are so many different rivers to it, which Zion is just one example of that. Yeah, I love... I love the book, The Rise, because it's about complexity. You, you ask in the preface of the book at the beginning, you ask, what does it mean to be a black cook? Did, did you actually come up with an answer to that other than complexity? Well, I think you, you have to make it in tranches, right? First of all, one of the biggest blessings that I've been given is as a black person to actually talk about complexity in my art form which majority of people of color actually never get the chance to do. So I am extremely grateful to the audience and the opportunities of that. And you have to recognize your privilege. And, you know, it's just, I'm setting the table, but I'm bringing in these incredible people that some of them are very known, some of them not so known, but it shows the layers and the complexity of it, which um, food does explain in many, many different ways. But we haven't had that deep conversation about it the way, for example, other art forms has had, right? If you and I would go and have a conversation about gospel, jazz, rock and roll, hip-hop, your next question is, what era, right. <laughs> right? Good point. You don't have to be a huge music lover, but you understand there are differences here, right? What I always felt like African-Americans and black people in this country have done so much for American food, but were written out of the authorship of it. Right. And that then really then changes the aspirations. Why should we go into food? And the inspiration. But it also changes everything on a financial level too, right? So, you know, if Nearest Green would have gotten 10 cents on every Jack Daniels that was right. sold... That would have changed not only for near Mr. Nearest Green, but for his family and the legacy after that. And he was he was the guy who taught them how to distill bourbon. Exactly, right? exactly. Right. right. So these are when you're written out of your authorship, it doesn't have a small impact. You know, what I mean? it has a huge impact, right? If you look at the food in the book mm. and try to say this somehow puts a circle around what you might define as black foodways or African-American foodways, you know, there's Dorawat from Ethiopia, there's Fonio from West Africa, mm. there's Berbera from, you know, East Africa, uh, shrimp and grits, kofta with okra, jollof rice, goats, broken rice, rice and peas, couscous. Is, is it the approach to the food? Is it the history of the recipe or the ingredients or where they come from? I went through all the recipes and I just felt there was a this may sound silly, but sort of a joy and energy to it, which I thought was distinctive. Well, I, I, uh, 
that's, I think, that's a very important question because the method and the sympathy here is really it's a couple of things. Doing a lot with a little, right? right? And I do think the America is very interesting here because so much of American food actually comes and is linked from West Africa. That broken rice that you see came to the Carolinas and the Gullah culture took their own spin on that, right? right. And the techniques of barbecues, for example, but so much of the food that we actually adore, you think about grits, you think about the food that we really think through as American food today, come from West Africa. But then also there's been this incredible layering, and that's what makes American food like a cuisine, like Creole for me, that is a complete link between France, Haiti, Africa, West Africa, the Spanish, and America. Right? Only that cuisine can really take place in America in a way. So there's definitely an energy. There's also this identity around ingredients that needed to get extended. There's a reason how do we get to the broken rice, right? Here's a good rice and here's the broken rice. And yet you have delicious food. Very similar to the way I think about how American music has been reimagined from church to rock and roll, to James Brown, and therefore you have hip-hop. Did, did the rise of this book change the way you think about cooking a little? I, I just give you an example. You know, A couple months ago, I started making Dora Watt a lot because I realized just a bunch of onions, half a cup of Berbera, you know, spice mix, and, and then some protein, whatever you want. I, you mm-hmm. know, and I went, this is brilliant because it's a bunch of onions and mostly not that spicy spice, depending on what you like. But it just created this incredible foundation. Mm. Uh, did you find, doing this book, did you find similar moments when you went, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, that's, that's a great technique. Well, first of all, thank you for being curious, because I think it takes people like yourself, that curiosity of the way, you know, maybe I discovered something in Vietnamese food, or maybe I discovered something in, let's say, Indian food, right? That aha moment, when it's outside your own culture, becomes a really big reward, and you can't wait to tell your friends that are also curious about this, right? And something like Dora, what you completely got it, it's actually an onion sauce with a little bit of berbere and meat, but that what it's called Doro what, what Doro means chicken and what means sauce. It's really the sauce right. that makes it, right? So that sauce can go in, it could be greens, it could be broccolini, it could be tofu, it could be anything that you want. And I say, the reason why I say that is because that's how Ethiopians eat it. The Doro is actually only added for big celebrations hmm. because most of Ethiopian cooking is actually vegetarian. And the meat only enters when there is a big celebration, breaking a fast. So you, you, you got there in a way that I, I, that I really love because it's, it's, it's exactly what it is. A lot have been said about food as a way of introducing people to culture. Um, your chef, have you seen when people taste food they're not familiar with, it's a, it's a little first step? to start to understand something broader, or is that overstated? I, I like to think yes, because I've been around it, right? Like I come really, when I think about minority food, I think about my Swedish food, 
you know, it's a small country that most people haven't been to. And eating pickled herring the way we eat in Sweden, I love it because I grew up with it. But that for me is much stranger. So I'm, when somebody says you're a minority, I never think about the black side of me of being minority. I think about the Swedish side <laughs> as a minority because it truly is. Right. It's a small country and it's an amazing country. But, you know, black food in America is something, black excellence is something we should celebrate, acknowledge. And because it's ours, it's American. It's not just belong to black people. It belongs to everybody. Just like American music has belonged to everybody. No, that's a, you know, let's just stop right there for a second because I think <laughs> I don't hear that point being made loudly enough and it's a really good point. Mm. It's American. It's sort of part of the whole American experience. Yes. And like you think about, we learn very often, you know, as a black person and you, you think about all these amazing people that's in the book, there's a level of normalcy that people just want. You know, when you speak to Nina Compton, you speak to Mashama, you speak to, you know, very often blackness gets talked about constantly in these extremes, whether it's a super athlete or, a, you know, somebody super famous like Oprah. Well, the majority of black life lives in a normal life right. with love and dreams and aspirations and non-linear path, do you know? And guess what? So has most people involved in food America, regardless of black or, or white or Asian or Latinx, right? But here is a culture that is their own that was very often written out out of the American food story. So all I'm asking is like, read these stories, support them, because this is our history. This is all of America's history. Marcus, um, just a real pleasure uh, having you on Milk Street. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for having me and keep cooking that Dora wet. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> that was Marcus Samuelson. His book is called The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. Marcus asked the question, what does it mean to be a black cook? From kofta with okra to Dora Watt rigatoni to Seamaw smoothie, it may be a difficult question to answer if you're looking for a very well-defined culinary repertoire. But there is a joy and energy to this cooking. There's a richness of palate and construct, also a deep sense of terroir, all married to the joys and idiosyncrasies of culinary immigration. Marcus's own son grew up on Swedish herring and Ethiopian stews. Most of all, and I hope that Marcus might agree with this, there is the hope or the demand that this richness of culture and food be considered a part of what makes America so special. It's no less than he and all of us deserve. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, soup au pistou. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you spent some time in Marseille. Uh, with some luck, uh, it was sort of hard to find a lot of recipes we want to bring back here. But yes. there was one in particular, soup au pistou, yes. which is essentially a minestrone yep. uh, with something like pesto. So let's start with the soup. Is it just a bean soup with veggies? It is. And, you know, i got to tell you, when I went to learn this dish, I was not ready to be impressed because, like you say, it's just a vegetable bean soup. Uh, and they add a little bit of pasta to it, although that's more to give it body and to thicken it than to actually add noodles to it. But it's what they do after they've made the soup that really got my attention. And, and as you know, I went to Genoa to learn how to make true Italian pesto. And 
I didn't realize that the south of France has its own version of this, which of course they call pistou. And they add that to the top of this very simple vegetable and bean soup. And I was expecting to not be very impressed by it because you figure, well, that's going to water down all the flavor of that beautiful pesto. Because as we know, in Italy, it's, uh, it's a construction. You know, they add very precise amounts of ingredients in a specific order so that each ingredient is treated in a particular way to get the end result. And of course, that pesto is then tossed with pasta. And, and it's not diluted very much, so it's a very careful construction of flavor. Here, they take a very different approach, even though in the south of France, they use exactly the same ingredients they go big on the garlic. I mean, so much so that when I tried the pisto by itself, it burned my tongue. I mean, that's a lot of garlic, and I <laughs> like garlic. <laughs> but they, they use all the same ingredients, very different proportions, and they're not at all careful about how they put them together. They just throw them in a mortar and pestle, and they, they bash it until it's a coarse paste. And when the soup has finished simmering, they ladle that into each bowl of soup, and you mix it in. And so what was this almost inedible paste of garlic and basil suddenly infuses all the broth, infuses the vegetables, and you get these amazing aromas coming out of each bowl. And then it suddenly made sense that you need a stronger pesto in order to flavor a bowl of soup. And that's a different requirement than tossing with a bowl of pasta. So the takeaway, I guess, is how intense the sauce is depends entirely on how it's going to be used. Exactly. Not, not a brilliant concept, <laughs> but true. Well, it's very often I've tasted a sauce called, this is too salty or this is too strong. Right. But then you use it like adding to a super stew, and right. it, it's fine. Right. You know, it depends on the, the intent. What are you going to do with it? What is it supposed to be flavoring? And flavoring pasta is going to be much different than flavoring a bowl of soup. So we don't use a mortar and pestle here. We use a food processor. Any, any other changes we made? Back no, here you know what? Street? It was such a simple recipe. It was wonderful for Milk Street because, you know, it's just we start with dried beans and, and we cook them up with some vegetables. The only thing we really did differently was instead of dumping all the vegetables in at once, we add them in, in an order so that the more tender vegetables go in last and don't get overcooked. And other than that, it's a very straightforward vegetable and bean soup that we then top with this amazing pisto. J.M., thank you very much. I guess your trip to Marseille paid for itself. It did indeed. Thank <laughs> well, you. That's what you told me, anyway. <laughs> you can find this recipe for soup au pisto at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Bianca Bosker gives us a history lesson on the humble fork. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability 
they'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jocelyn. Hi, Jocelyn. Where are you calling from? I am calling for Bedford, Massachusetts. How can we help you today? I was calling because my family has an old banana bread recipe that came with a under cookbook that my mom got as a wedding present. And it uses cream of tartar. And it is one of the only baking recipes I have ever seen that uses cream of tartar as um, one of the dry ingredients. And I was curious as to what purpose it actually serves in the recipe. And since it is kind of an older recipe, if there's any historical um, information about its usage. What other leavener is in there besides the cream of tartar? I think it's just baking soda. Okay, well, that makes sense. Baking powder is actually a combination of baking soda and cream of tartar. So my guess is that is why it was there. Cream of tartar is a byproduct of the winemaking process, and it's essentially an acid. So it's very Mm -hmm. useful with meringues or egg whites. Chris, do you have any thoughts? 
Do I have any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're full of thoughts. I think cream of tartar may at one time been a formula with baking soda for baking powder. Baking soda is alkaline, which will react with acids in a batter. If there are no acids in the batter, you add a little cream of tartar to balance it out. But baking powder today usually is double acting, so it will start reacting at room temperature with liquid and then at oven temperatures. That's why it's called double acting. But I agree with Sarah that the only real use for it today is with egg whites. For every two whites, add maybe a quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar. Much like sugar, it helps to stabilize the foam. It's harder to overwhip, and they won't deflate as rapidly. So that's really pretty much why I keep cream of tartar around. It's just a little bit of an insurance policy with egg whites. The banana bread's interesting, though. What else is in the recipe? It's a blender recipe, so you dump yeah. a bunch of things into the blender, um, your eggs, your butter, it's white sugar. For the rest of it, it's a pretty standard quick bread, you know, flour, right. like I said, baking soda, and then the cream of tartar. But it was an older recipe, you said. Yes. Chris, that's probably why. It could be. This was around the time of the Magna Carta. About, <laughs> I mean, the double acting's been around quite a while. I mean, to make a banana bread in a blender is wild. You can do it in a blender. You don't blend the flour. You liquefy the liquid ingredients first, right? And then you'd add yes, the flour. Yes, and you mix those right. by hand into the dry. Right. 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 You don't overdevelop the gluten. Yeah, that, anyway, that, that makes sense. The answer is it was an older recipe, yeah. but these days you you wouldn't do that. You know, you can just use double-acting baking powder. If I wanted to replace the cream of tartar in this recipe, would it just be a, a one-for-one with the, the baking soda and the cream of tartar with um, baking powder done? Yep, because you don't have anything that acid in there. It's white sugar, not brown sugar. So I would just mm-hmm. add up the total of those two ingredients and use baking powder instead, as Sarah suggested. Yeah. That should work. All right, Jocelyn, thanks for calling. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a call anytime. We'll answer your questions at 855-426-9843. One more time, that's 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bridget Ruthman in Sandusfield, Massachusetts. Hi, Bridget. How can we help you today? Gosh, uh, what fun. Um, I am the child of a war bride and a military man who met during World War II. And I spent my childhood or part of it in Germany with my grandparents and my cousins. And they had a tradition of gardening that sustained them in the war and in the agricultural region was, was very common for everybody to have a big garden. And when I was a child, I have a very vivid memory of this incredibly fertile soil. It was almost greasy. And one of the things I remember so well was the potatoes. And I can just hear my grandmother asking, those two Kartoffelhaben. And we heard it almost every single day. (laughs) As children, we got sick of hearing it. But now I just crave those potatoes. You can't come close to that in this country, really, the best you can do is Yukon Gold, but it pales by comparison to these potatoes. And they had no bugs, and they were just like treasures found in the soil. And how do we come close to this? Oh, dear. You know, it has to do with terroir. You know, it's like wine or anything else, and also probably care. But you probably can't find the exact same potato. I have a girlfriend who is 
married to somebody who's German, and they spend a certain amount of time every year in Germany. And I know that she has sometimes used a potato you can find here called German butterball. That might be something to look for. Yukon gold is sort of not completely a waxy potato, but I think we're talking about a waxy potato. So any small yellow waxy potato would be a substitute. Part of it is who's growing them. I mean, I've grown potatoes for a long time, and they taste great. And the soil in Vermont is terrible. So it's not that we have great <laughs> loamy soil, but, you know, it's like growing your own apples. So commercially, it's like the commercial tomato or the commercial apple. They're not as good as a garden. And Maine seems to be a place where we grow potatoes in this country. Yep. And yet there's not a lot of diversity, not a lot of choice there. But no. is there some variety out of Maine that seems to be fairly small farms and fairly well done, not mega commercial farms? So what would we choose there? Or what could I find as a seed potato to plant in the spring? Well, I do know, let's say in Vermont, some of the orchards are growing heirloom varieties. I just picked up a whole bunch recently. And I think that's probably true for potatoes as well. If you went to a farmer's market, you'd find some out-of-the-way varieties. I know the Green Mountain potato sort of the standard potato in New England, or at least in Vermont. But it's, you know, it's a baking potato. It's nothing special. I would go to a farmer's market. I agree with that, yeah. Portland, Maine, on Saturday mornings has a fabulous farmer's market. And also Seeds of Change is that catalog which has all the heirloom varieties, I would look there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah agree. great. Great point. Thank you very much for that. Thank all you. Right. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Bridget. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Jonathan Smiley from New Albany, Indiana, and here's my tip. Leftover waffles or pancakes can be frozen and reheated later. To stop them sticking together, I put a sheet of parchment paper between the waffles as I put them in the freezer bag. Once they're frozen, this makes it easy to remove one or two without having to defrost the entire bag. Thanks. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's journalist Bianca Bosker. Bianca, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm always a little nervous when I talk to you because I just never can predict what you're going to say. <laughs> that's good. It's Someone's got to keep you on your toes, yeah, Chris. Yeah, that's good. Well, I want to talk about a relatively new and rather divisive addition to America's tables, which is the fork. I was doing dishes the other day, and maybe it was boredom, maybe it was resentment, but I started to wonder, where did the fork come from? Is this something that you've uh, researched yourself, Chris? Yeah, people used to just carry knives around, right? And you just cut off a piece, but then the fork, I think it just had two tines initially. It was, it was quite different than the modern fork, right? Very different. And a relative late bloomer by comparison with the spoon and the knife. Um, but yes, you're right. Early traces of the fork, which were then bigger, they had two tines, were used as a cooking utensil. But the personal table fork, that came a bit later, probably around the fourth century. And the early adopters were really the wealthy and elite in the Byzantine Empire, in Persia and the Middle East. Western Europe, totally different case. 
The fork was an abomination. And mm. one of the earliest sort of recorded cameos of the fork apparently took place around the year 1004 when the niece of a Byzantine emperor married into Venetian aristocracy. And this bride had the gall to eat her dinner with a fork. I mean, people were outraged. There was a member of the clergy who denounced her. He wrote, and I quote, God in his wisdom has provided man with natural forks, his fingers. Uh, for the next couple hundred years, eating with a fork was condemned. It was at worst an insult to God. It was at best pretentious, affected, snooty, dainty, you know, a sign of just sinful pride and vanity. So w when did it come into regular service in Europe? Well... By 1633, King Charles I of England had uh, declared it decent to use a fork. Um, some other countries, it was you know a bit earlier. Um, there's some explanations for that. One of them, for example, is practical. There was apparently a big rage for eating candied fruits in the 1400s, and um, that was really difficult to do with a spoon and a knife. You know, they were sticky. It was messy. Um, some explanations say that uh, hygiene concerns led to the embrace of the fork. Um, also etiquette, this idea of sort of conspicuous consumption through the tools you use for consumption. Um, but in the United States, it took us a while. Um, so the fork, or as it was called for a long time, a split spoon, took until the mid to late 1800s to really gain traction in the U.S. In the 1830s, there was actually an American who declared it kind of unpatriotic to eat with a fork, that you had a hand and a knife, and like that was the American way. Um, but by 1887, it was called a favorite and fashionable utensil. It was interesting that Americans were sort of late to this party, but the Victorians took the fork and ran with it. I mean, <laughs> yes, came out with like dozens of different forks, berry forks, cherry forks, fish right. forks, chip forks, oyster forks, granny forks, a mango fork, which kind of looks like someone giving you the middle finger. <laughs> and they just embraced it. You know, it's interesting. There are places in the world where you taste food off the back of your hand while you're cooking. And you still eat it with your hands. And there's something, I've done that, and uh, there is something wonderful about eating with your hands. And so I'm all for utensils, but we did leave something behind. Oh, I completely agree. And what's interesting is when you look at some of the prototypes for kind of next generation utensils, some designers are trying to bring us back to the idea of eating with our hands. I think there's an interesting argument that they make, which is that we actually lose a lot of information about our meals by foregoing eating with our fingers. You know, that flavor isn't just taste and smell, it's the texture, it's the temperature. Right. Um, there's a team called Michelle Fabian that has come up with prototypes that essentially try and recreate the experience of eating with our body. So they have one product, for example, that is supposed to combine the functionality of chopsticks, the fork, and the knife, while also imitating the thumb and index finger. Can you imagine what this might look like? No idea. It is a tong. <laughs> There's also a, a long teardrop-shaped glass wand that they've come up with, which is um, designed to evoke the experience of licking your fingers. Um, but I think stepping back from this, you know, 
the fork is credited with turning eating into dining. And I think that in looking at these hmm. concepts and thinking about the sort of relatively new history of the fork, it sort of raises this question of have we come to this moment where we should take dining back to eating? Are we losing something? And maybe the most revolutionary thing of all might be to put down the fork and take up our two hands. Well, there are burgers. There is barbecue. Absolutely. There, <laughs> there is fried chicken. There are chips. There are lots of things we still use our hands for. Sandwich, of course. No, I, I think that's interesting. I guess the question now is, will we revert back to a purer form of eating our food, or will we stick with the uh, white tablecloth high dining? Well, and, and what might we uh, gain in the process of moving away from it? I mean, that plethora of forks has led to this concept of a fork anxiety. You know, the idea of what fork you used, when and how really was and I think continues to be bound up in issues of class and status. So I think that it's, uh, it's just food for thought. Bianca, thank you so much. To eat with a fork or to eat with your hands, another modern conundrum. Thank you. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or you can order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff, And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.